This is episode 695 with performance psychologist Dr. Scott Goldman. Welcome to Athlete Maestro, a podcast tailored for athlete development, improvement, and peak performance. And now, here's your host. It's not every day in the world of sports and that you get to meet someone who has two PhDs and who is so knowledgeable about their crafts. You know, after all, the, the, the essence of the podcast Athlete Maestro is to help athletes master their craft. Now, we know that mastery is a continuous process, but you see, you don't get to have two PhDs without actually being a master of your crafts. And that is exactly what happened on this episode. You know, I think there was a previous episode on the podcast, you know, where I talked about being taken to school. This was another episode where I felt like I was taken to school. Like, you know, I I was sitting in class and learning. When we went into detail on the athletics intelligence quotient, man, it, it was a fantastic interview with Dr. Scott Goldman. And trust me, it is one that you want to digest in detail. If you're an athlete, who is a student of your sports, an athlete who, you know, really wants to learn, really wants to improve, continues to break down the game, you know, in different facets, from different angles, all geared to improving your game, then this is the episode for you. Dr. Scott Goldman is a director of performance psychology, is the creator of the Athletics Intelligent Quotient, which, of course, I went into detail with him about. He's also a clinical and performance psychologist. And, of course, he is an expert in performance enhancement, sports intelligence enhancement, confidence. Like, like trust me, the things Dr. Scott and I talked about, like, it, I, I just don't know how to explain it other than you just listen to it. Like, we, we talked about performance psychology from an athlete's perspective. We talked about why, as an athlete, you should constantly be asking questions. Like, it's key. Dr. Scott broke down the difference between intelligence, knowledge, and experience. So you see so many people, right? You go out there, you're talking about how intelligent you are. It might just be that you're just very knowledgeable. We even took a detour and talked about sports parenting. Then we went into the AIQ, and of course, Dr. Scott broke that down in detail. What comprises of the AIQ, and how can you begin to assess yourself based off of those parameters so that you know what you should work on, what you should improve on. Trust me, like like it was so good. We talked about pressure. And of course, Dr. Scott would not be an expert in confidence if we don't ask him about confidence. And of course, we asked him about confidence. He shares great examples from many of the athletes that he has worked with. Like, trust me, man, you know, I, I was listening back to the episode, you know, and it was even better than the first time. So maybe while the episode was going on, I wasn't listening. But trust me, when I listened back to it, it was that remarkable. I can't wait for you guys to head into this and digest it in detail. This episode, guys, is brought to you by my program, Mental Mastery, you know, where I help you guys, right, master the mental game in sports and also eliminate those mental blocks that are holding you back from performing your best. And of course, that's one of the key things you will learn from this episode with Dr. Scott. Like he, he goes into detail on a lot of those mental things. Now, of course, a lot of these things are subjective in the sense that it's when the athlete is sitting down in front of you that you actually learn those things. But trust me, there's so many things that you're going to pick out from this episode. So sign up for that program. Head over to athletemaestro.com forward slash mental mastery. athletemaestro.com forward slash 
mental mastery where you learn about the mental game you also eliminate the mental blocks that are holding you back from performing your best when you signed up for that come let us take you to school myself and dr scott Rose. that i wanted to talk about dr scott is you know you you've been a director of performance psychology and i know that you would agree with me that sports is about performance that's the main thing if you cannot perform then of course you might just as well be playing your sport for fun so when we talk about performance psychology what exactly do we mean yeah you know it's such a good question and and Sometimes I like to provide this as an example or as sort of a slight segue. If we were to talk about dentistry or a dentist, we could probably get into a debate as to what makes a good dentist or what makes a bad dentist, but there would at least be a uniformed concept of what a dentist is or what a dentist does. I think by contrast... We have so many different people training in different departments and areas of psychology that there's a lot more confusion than I wish there there was. So you know, you can be a psychology, you can be a performance psychology person from an industrial organization background. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You could be one from a clinical or counseling background. You could be one from an exercise science and kinesiology background. You could be a life coach. You could be a motivational speaker. So I think the truth lies in the common language. And if someone would ask me, okay, well, where is the common language? And the common language is psychology. Almost everyone, no matter where their training came from, what they center on is this concept of psychology. So you can, okay, well, what's psychology? In my humble opinion, the simplest way I can define psychology, it's really the... Um, study and understanding of human behavior and human interaction. And that, of course, is a part of everything that we do in life. I mean, you know, whether it's going for a run or trying to negotiate with my wife who's going to make dinner tonight, like all of those things are psychological in nature or psychologically influenced. Then you add the adjective of performance And it's just sort of like, okay, so what are the concepts of psychology that fold into when somebody is trying to do something really exceptional, like, say, win a gold medal? Mm -hmm. And those conversations, I think, are very, very complicated and very, very complex. In my heart of hearts, in my hope of hopes, what I would wish for would be that we had some kind of uniformity in the nature of the work. And because we don't, we have this confusion so that when the Olympic athlete, for example, comes into the office and says, hey, I've got the third fastest time in the world and I want the first, that we all tipped or tapped um, the same kind of like science, the same kind of empirical validated practice, the same kind of mechanisms, the way, you know, dentists would all kind of go about treating a cavity. But until that moment happens, I think what I've sort of prioritized in my space is when that person comes to me saying, I've got the third fastest time in the world, which is a real true story. 
um, yep. that I can tap into more than just one of those buckets of study. Mm. I, I like how you've gone into detail so that it's not um, uh, just some, some general perception of what it is. But if I was an athlete, you know, you've mentioned that Olympic athlete now who wants to go from third fastest time to first fastest time. Now we're talking about an athlete who they've not got into that level yet, right? And they want to get to that level. And they've started hearing about, oh, I need to start focusing on my mindset. I need to take this seriously. Sports is a mental game. Because I kid you not, I've seen athletes who they've been hearing about it but they never really knew what the mental game in sports really is. So from that athlete's perspective, specific to sports, what would you say performance psychology is? It's a good question. So you're talking about those that are trying to go from good to great versus those that are great to exceptional, right? Exactly. I think there is a, a trap a potential trap when talking about performance psychology at the good to great level. And the reason why I say that is at the great to gold medal difference, which is really, again, like the person who had the third yeah. fastest to the first fastest, I asked her, I said, what's the difference in time? She said it was about three one hundredth of a second, which is the length of a sneeze. True. So it's weird and paradoxical that at the elite level, the amount of time, effort, and energy to improve three one-hundredths of a second is far greater than the amount of time, effort, and energy that's taken to improve or knock off seconds, not hundreds of seconds, but seconds, when you're going from good to great. So the first place that I would start is I would look at some of the other factors. So what do I mean by that? I mean, you could be the strongest mental performance ready individual, but if you're 200 pounds overweight, a a sport like sprinting, Mm. like it's just gonna negate that. So I think the place that I would start and where where my mind goes right now is let's appreciate the complexity of what it takes to go from new to average to good to great to elite is really a complex formula of things like physical attributes, intelligence, work ethic, the amount of time you spend learning your sport and developing your craft and being committed to it. So I think where psychology kind of hits on all of those touch points is um, how to keep people engaged. So I'm kind of being a little bit long-winded because it's a good question and I'm I'm kind of processing it in live time here. (laughs) You can edit this however you want. But I think one place that I would start is Someone who wants to go from good to great, well, let me go back a step. Those that are great to elite have already taken care of most 
of the known things like nutrition and strength and conditioning and coaching. So that's where I find the performance psych application becomes a differentiator because everybody, everybody at the elite level is big, strong, and fast. True. So to go back to go from good to great, I would say, okay, you got to have good sleep, good nutrition, good work ethic, like all of those things. And where psychology could help is trying to help people do those things. So I'll be real specific. The best athletes I've ever been around are the ones that um, enjoy the stuff that most other people do not like doing. So they like to go to the weight room. They like to work out. Really, really great athletes don't mind it. They'll sacrifice it. Like they'll go, well, it's yep. worth it for my performance. All that. I'm talking about like the best of the best of the best. They talk about you know shooting free throws. Like I would talk about eating a birthday cake. You know, and so um, I think for to go from good to great, most of those individuals that I've worked with. It has to do with trying to navigate the discomfort and the and the right. unpleasurable parts of their sport. Like, well, I don't really. Let's just take rowing for example. Yeah. Um, rowers they sit on an erg, and for those that might not know what an erg is, it's basically a machine where you're staring at a little yeah. brick-sized calculator that's clicking numbers as you sit there simulating the row. Yeah. It's pretty boring. It's pretty um, painful. Like, it's not a very. It doesn't. <coughs> it doesn't sound or experiencing. It doesn't feel like a very pleasurable task. Right. So when I was at the University of Michigan, where we had a rowing program, I had quite a few of the rowers that would come in and say, "I don't want to do a five k erg today. It's not right. very fun. It's not very pleasant for me." So. I think when you have that scenario, good to great, where it's saying no to the birthday cake, trying to find a way to get through a 5K erg, doing those kinds of things. Because saying no is as uncomfortable as saying yes to something that's yes. hard. So, um, so the idea that I'll tap into with the good to great athlete is why are they doing this? What gives them a sense of meaning? What gives them a sense of purpose? What are they trying to accomplish? And then why are they trying to accomplish it? So, you know, people like Sam Sinek have kind of coined the phrase of like, know your why, which what a great way to kind of package the message. I think it's a little bit more complicated than that because sometimes the why is not always the why. Like you go, oh, I just want to make my parents and friends and family proud of me and then they'll just stop at that and it's like no no well, why do you care why is that important to you yeah so so i i spend a lot of time with the athletes that are at that sort of different level you describe mm-hmm. trying to assess what they're willing to sacrifice what they're willing to do that's unpleasant and then really more importantly why are they willing to do it yeah, fantastic. There, there, there are two things that come from what you just said, you know, and I, I, I love how this, we've not even gotten into the main 
the main um, thing that we want to discuss, but we're, we're gradually building up to that. You know, first you've talked about how it's a complicated web, right? Going from good to great, and the guys that are already at that great level trying to be elite. Now, one of the things that I've also seen with a lot of these athletes who are good and who are trying to be great is that once they discover this psychology part of sports, this mental game part of sports, and you you try to introduce them to the to the basic things, you know, just like you mentioned, there are certain things you should start with. There are certain things you should start doing. They always want to do the complicated things because those easy things appear too easy. You know, so you tell an athlete, for example, try and sleep eight hours. And they're like, come on. It couldn't be like that. That can't really be the difference between me being good and great. Or you tell them, you know, cut out the fizzy drinks. Probably affecting your performance. And they're like, what? What does a bottle of soda have to do with what I'm trying to accomplish in my sports? How would you advise an athlete who finds themselves in that bracket? They want to do complicated things, but they've not mastered the easy things yet. Yeah, I think there's actually two directions to go with that question. One is trying to understand, right? So a good education. So let's go to the example that you said about saying no to the fizzy drink. So I see this right now with some athletes who are really desperate and super invested in becoming the best versions that they can be. They sometimes can get caught in... Um, magic pills and and I don't mean that literally like we're not talking yeah. steroids I'm talking like people who are selling them magic beans people who are selling yeah. them you know and there's a lot of products that are out there that have no efficacy they have no scientific support mm. but they look cool they have kind of a sexy kind of vibe to them and I don't want to describe any of them what I can tell you, though, is like working at the professional level with the professional teams, where 1% makes the difference, a lot of those kinds of toys are put in the building, and you watch it. A third of the athletes will do it because they'll do everything that's asked of them. A third of the athletes won't do it because they don't want to do anything, including even like going to practice or meetings. And then you have this other third that's kind of like, they're unsure. So I think... The interesting thing is if you say, okay, no fizzy drinks. I would be cautious of the athlete that gives that up just because someone tells them. Because then they're going to do everything. And they're not going to even know how much impact does that have or how important is that performance. So the first step is when an athlete is introduced with something. Does it have empirical support? Is it a well-thought-out intervention? Or is it just something that someone came up with on a whim? Or, or it's a clever phrase. Dominate the day. Be the best version of yourself. You know, there are all these kinds of like phrases that can come out there. What do they mean? And, and what's it all about? Don't drink fizzy drinks. Do drink fizzy drinks. Don't have caffeine. Do have caffeine. Like, there is always this debate. So I, I go back to science and scientific practice. So... The first thing is seek competitive advantages. Then it's about making sure that there's some empirical support to them. 
Mm. I, lo- I love how you've broken that down. And, and what I hear you say, actually, is, and you, you can tell me if I'm right or wrong or if you agree or not, is that athletes need to be students of the game in the full sense of the word. So in the sense that someone introduces something to you, you ask questions, right? You try to study it. So it's not just, oh, I'm studying to be a better athlete. I'm looking at all those technical aspects and all those things. But I'm also investigating the things that I'm being fed. Because if the things you're being fed are wrong by any stretch of the imagination, you've lost time you're never going to get back. Yeah. And so, like, let's just, like, you're talking about the fizzy drinks, right? Let's just go with that as a specific example. So there's sport drinks, Raid and Powerade. Then there's things like drinks that you would give to a, a, a child or youth, like Pedialyte. And then there's just straight up um, brining solutions, like what you would have cucumbers that turn into pickles. There's actually some parallel and there's some research that talks about the choices between an energy drink, uh, sorry, a sport drink, um, a child drink, uh-huh. and a brining drink as far as what they can do from a recovery standpoint. So if the question is, hey, it's important to hide, and, and don't forget like the age-old water, like water also yeah, has its, its, its advantages too. So it's just this idea of like, okay, is there a competitive advantage to drinking pickle juice over um, Powerade or Powerade over Pedialyte or Pedialyte over water? I think mm-hmm. that's where the rubber meets the road. Does that uh, make sense? Fantastic. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely it does. You know, and of course, it comes back to breaking all of that down. You know, let's go into the AIQ now because I feel like the, the, the kind of things that are going to come out of that, you know, I, I hope I don't keep you for about two or three hours, you know, because I know your day, my, my day is ending while your day is almost like just getting started, right? So it's a test that was created, so an intelligence test, right, that was created to assess the innate cognitive abilities, right, that you need when you are executing in sports, Um, so learning techniques, you know, doing certain skills and things like that. Talk to me about how you came about that and what led to it. Okay, so um, I have two PhDs, one's in clinical psychology, one's in school psychology. I said you prepared the goats, right? I was right. (laughs) I've just been fortunate to work with some really good people, but... um, when I was studying the school psychology, school psychology has a primary drive of trying to understand human behavior and human interaction when it comes to learning. And so a big part of that is learning theory and intelligence. And, you know, there's, there's a ton of theories about intelligence. But the one theory that I was studying at the time was called the Cattell-Horn-Carroll Theory of Intelligence. And it was a part of learning how to administer intelligence, mostly to identify learning disabilities in students or giftedness. Uh And while I was studying that, I was watching the the NFL draft. And I was like, gosh, I wonder how they're assessing sports-specific intelligence. Uh So uh, I was training at the Albert Ellis Institute at the time. And a friend of mine, so I was a a staff member. He was a fellow. So he was like a year or two behind me in training. 
I, he and I were just kind of having um, dinner one night at, at the institute in between meeting with clients. And I told him this idea, and he goes, you know, that's something that's very near and dear to my heart. I've been working on some stuff at the university that I'm at. I think we could build this. And I was like, really? And he goes, yeah. So he and I spent 15 years. We followed the American Psychological Association's guidelines for test construction. And we spent 15 years. And really what we did was is we started with one kind of simple concept. We said, well, we've got to define what sports is. So we said, okay, sports is a ever-evolving problem. It's, a cha- it's just chaos. It's a chaotic situation with problems, lifetime problems that you're having to solve. So what cognitive abilities, what aspects of intelligence are most impactful when it comes to understanding how to solve these puzzles during chaos? So we looked at things like firefighters, police officers, military, but mostly sports. And as we started to refine that, we said, hey, I think we've got a profile here of cognitive abilities that are most needed in those domains. So again, it took us 15 years to develop it. We brought it to market in 2012. We're currently being used by all five major leagues in the United States, the NFL, the NBA, the NHL, Major League Baseball, MLS. Uh, We're being used by a couple of Olympic training facilities. We're being used by a couple of NCAA teams. Um, There is a a firefighter unit in Colorado that's using us. And then there's a couple of um, European soccer teams, or I guess, you know, football. And and, uh, eSports, it's being used in eSports. So uh, what's kind of exciting is, I think because we took 15 years to develop it, I always tell people it's kind of like trying to hit a bullseye. Like we were really aiming. (laughs) We aimed, we re-measured, we aimed again, we re-measured. And I think we hit a bullseye. And I think evidence of that is we have several... Um, academic papers published in peer-reviewed journals that show statistically significant correlation to on-field performance in the NFL and Major League Baseball. Ah, Amazing. Before we go into the AIQ itself, is there any difference between what you discovered, what you came up with, and the traditional sports IQ that we know it to be? You know, so you hear athletes being told, Develop your sports IQ. Develop your sports IQ. Yeah. Is there any difference? Yeah, a big difference. So mm. I think what's happening is people are using the term intelligence incorrectly. So this, mm. this happens all the time where when things from psychology, like you know, academia transfers to community, certain terms lose their definition. So I think when people talk about sport IQ, what they're really talking about is experience and knowledge. And they go, oh, that guy's got a great sport IQ. What they're really saying is when the puzzle presents itself, he already knows the answer to the test. Intelligence, by its true definition, it's the ability to acquire, process, and apply information. So... If knowledge is knowing that 2 plus 2 equals 4, intelligence is how you go about discovering that. You go, all right, I've got two apples. 
I've got two apples. I put them together. I count them. One, two, three, four. Clearly, two plus two must equal four. That process of figuring out the solution is intelligence. So from what you've said now, intelligence would lead to the knowledge. The knowledge doesn't necessarily give you the intelligence. Correct. Knowledge gives you the answer. And, and what most people would say is they go, I don't care. Like, I don't care how the guy got there. I only care that he knows how to get there. So it's, you know, again, let's just, let's take a more international sport, like I'm American, so I'll call it soccer, but really the rest yeah. of the world calls it football. So football. for this interview, we'll call it football. <laughs> so in football, you've got a winger who has to make an attack, get himself to maybe the last five meters in order to send the ball to the top, like by the penalty kick area. Into the mixer, I believe, as some would call it, right? Yeah. In order to hopefully get a good, decent strike on the ball for a goal. Mm. So how do you go about doing that? This is where it gets that web of complication. Well, first, the winger's got to be strong and fast enough to get to the last five meters. So he's got to be fit for all that. Then he's got to have some skill work and understanding with being on the ball. So... He's got to put the time and attention in being able to touch the ball, trap the ball, dribble with the ball, etc. Then there's the tactics of what we went over all week long and studying the game plan and the coach telling us how to run this play and to kind of get into this game play scenario so it's familiar. Like That's the web. Mm. But then there's also this moment in live time where you do exactly what you were taught, but the defense has now adjusted to it. And you got to recalibrate. Like you got to pull the ball back, and maybe go towards the goal in order to pull the defense out of position to then make that pass. Mm. And intelligence is the ability to navigate those kinds of situations when they haven't been rehearsed. So intelligence kind of kicks in two ways. One is how do you download this information? So, example, mm. people with higher levels of intelligence don't need as much time practicing to get to a place of mastery. So if it takes an average person like myself 10 hours to get it right, someone with superior intelligence, maybe it only takes them five hours to get it right, which could lead to things like injury prevention or more advanced play calling, etc. But then there's also the ability to be creative, the ability to improvise, the ability to discard a calcified way of doing something. So again, that's when, well, all the things that we planned for the week have now gone completely out the door, and we got to figure it out in the middle of the game. Hmm. Intelligence allows us to find creative solutions. Uh, I, I, I love that you say that, and obviously, you know, the... The lawyer in me is coming out in this interview, right? So I'm leaving, I'm leaving the, the, the performance angle a little bit out of it. I, I hear what you're saying, and I agree. I agree, completely agree. But from a, should I say, a layman's perspective or a young athlete's perspective or an amateur athlete's perspective, doesn't acquiring more knowledge help you with the intelligence to then develop solutions as the situation presents itself. 
What I would say is more knowledge gives you more ingredients to cook with. Mm. But intelligence still requires you to like recall that information. So for example, let's say my knowledge is how to win balls in the air in mm. in football. But now I'm in a situation where our our star defensive back got injured. I'm actually I'm I'm a I'm a striker, but our star defensive back got injured. So I know how to win balls in the air to head towards the goal because I'm a striker. But my team has just asked me to go and play defensive back. We're up three goals. We don't need to score anymore. But what we really need, and I'm the fastest guy on the team. So they put me at defensive back to help prevent anything else from happening because I'm so athletic, right? So now all of a sudden, ball comes in the air, and everything I've been taught from a knowledge perspective is get my chin down, so I can head it, head it towards goal, because chin up, ball's going to sail. But when you're defending, you want to do just the opposite, because you don't want the ball back in play. You want the ball to yeah. get out. So that's knowledge is striking the ball towards the goal. Intelligence is taking that learned behavior and mutating it so that you can now play defense, even though you've been a striker your whole life. Mm. So how do athletes now start developing this intelligence especially right from the perspective of the athlete who has learned things wrong for so long so i'm going to come to that issue of technical depth hopefully we have time <laughs> hopefully i have time right but how does an athlete? because i mean it's easy for an athlete who is being introduced to this at a very early age right so you understand this is knowledge this is intelligence this is what I need to start doing. But the athlete who for ages had always thought that knowledge was intelligence, the way I'd been learning had always been right. And it comes to the realization that this has all been wrong. How do they then now develop that intelligence? Yeah. So, again, there's two, two current thoughts. Mm. One thought comes from the literature that taps into something called neuroplasticity, which says that our brain is constantly evolving, our brain's constantly developing, we're developing more wires, we're developing more uh, myelin sheath around the wires, which is kind of like a, a, a coating that ensures the signal going through the brain, uh, the brain neural net pathways is strong. Um, what's interesting about that literature is it's pretty new, it's pretty young, it's pretty exciting. I think there's something there. But I have not seen any products that claim to work on neuroplasticity actually enhance performance. I just haven't seen it yet. I'm not saying it doesn't exist. I'm just saying in all the places that I've been where they have countless amounts of money, bottomless budgets, where they buy just about anything and everything, I have not seen any of those products actually produce what they yield. So the other uh, concept or theory is that intelligence is a genetically stable trait. Uh. One of the most genetically stable traits that we have. So you don't improve intelligence. What you do is you, you use the intelligence that you have more effectively. So a good example of that would be like another genetic trait is height. If I was tall, 
and the task or the problem was I had to get something off the top shelf. Mm-hmm. Well, a taller person would have an easier time getting that than a shorter person. However, it doesn't mean that a shorter person can't get it. It just means what they have to do is figure out a way to climb up or get a ladder or get a step stool or something, right? So similarly with people who might have lower intelligence, it doesn't mean they can't succeed. It just means they have to come up with a strategy that's the equivalent of the step stool for the top shelf. So let's say the task now is about um, studying the playbook, downloading the play, and then recalling it three or four days later. If you are not good at that, you might want to take notes. You might want to ask the coach if you can record it on your cell phone so you can listen to the, the lesson later. So it's not to say, oh, we made you more intelligent. What we did was is we made you more resourceful because remember, going back to the basic premise and theory is coaches and athletes just want to get the play done and done right. They don't care if you do it by size. They don't care if you do it by speed. They don't care if you do it by intelligence or by experience. What they care about is that it got done and it got done right. And that's where things get complicated is there's a lot of different ways to get to the right. Hmm. That's a that, that, that's a good one, and it's taking me. We're going to come back to the AIQ, right? But it's taking me a little bit on the tangent, and of course, this comes to sports parenting and young athletes. You know, so I hear you say, you know, that look, there really is the the, the rate at which you can develop intelligence is very limited, right? And of course, that then takes us to the beginning, because I honestly believe to a certain extent that nobody's really born dumb you know or nobody's really born without with the ability that oh this person is never going to do well in school is never going to be able to learn this obviously we have your um um, what do you call them now so autism and some of these other behavioral defects and things like that if we're going to go back to the beginning and you were going to advise a parent who i mean all things being equal they would wish their children be athletes they hope that they love it they hope that they fall in love with the process. They're not going to force them or anything like that. What are some of the things that you would recommend they do to help them start developing that intelligence from a very young age? Yeah. So, again, I want to be careful with our terminology regarding mm-hmm. the word intelligence because I would make the argument that I don't like the word dumb. I would make the argument yep. that people are born with different levels of intelligence, that it is a genetically influenced trait. It's, you know, it's funny because it'd be like saying people are born with blue eyes versus brown eyes. People are born with blonde hair versus dark hair. People are born taller than shorter. Now, you know, it's funny, right? Because there's this old adage when it comes to speed, like you can't make a slow person fast. Yep. You can make a slow person less slow, and you can make a fast person faster, but you can't necessarily make a slow person fast. So similarly, you can have people with low levels of intelligence, but they can still be wildly successful with the right kinds of strategies. So again, it might be that they have to spend more time practicing, or they might have to rely more on their physical abilities. You know, like I would take someone with less intelligence 
but is seven feet tall as a center than I would someone who is supremely intelligent who's only four feet tall. But they both have their challenges and they both have their advantages because the more intelligent person might come up with a good strategy to box out the seven-footer and the seven-footer might not come up with the strategies but will basically just reach up and grab the ball because they, they've got yeah. this height advantage. <laughs> so when it goes back to intelligence, I agree with you that no one's born incapable. Yeah, better what? But how they go about navigating to get to the goal that they want to attain mm -hmm. can be done through a lot of different vehicles. Size, weight, mm -hmm. strength, speed, effort. So, now I say all of that with an asterisk, which is to say that the mm -hmm. brain develops in leaps and bounds up until about the age of 16. Like our brain gets, mm -hmm. like even in the first year, our brain grows exponentially. Even in the first three years, our brain grows even more. So, I think the things like sleep, nutrition, reading books to young children before they know how to mm. read. like There's all kinds of things that we can do as parents to improve brain growth and brain activity prior to the age mm. of 16. Similarly, I'd also stay away from things that we know to be harmful mm. to the brain, like drugs or you know collisions to the head. Mm. Yeah. Hmm. Good, good point. You know, but just before I come back to the AIQ, if I was a parent, you know, I'm, you know, obviously I'm a parent, have a young daughter myself. If I wanted to tell from an early age, if they had that intelligence, is there something I'm looking out for? Well, yeah, I think what it goes back to is if I could tell you that your child, like, let's imagine you can't mm. see height. Uh -huh. And the task, again, is to get to the thing at the top shelf. But you can't see height. Uh -huh. So now you hire someone like me or you use something like the AIQ that says, hey, your son or daughter, they're just not very tall. Uh -huh. <laughs> and you go, I don't want to hear that. Like, they got to get to the top shelf. And you go, no, this is easy. Here's a stepladder. Here's, here's a stool. Uh -huh. Just whenever they have to go do top shelf stuff, make sure you bring the step ladder. And they go, that's it? And you go, yeah, that's it. See, I think what happens sometimes with intelligence is we start to fold it into like our character and our personality. So like if someone has like a bad knee or a bad ankle, we don't take that personally. Oh man, yeah. you're telling me I'm stupid or I'm dumb. It's like, no, I just have a bad ankle. But if you are someone who processes information slower than other elite performers, it's like, you calling me dumb? And it's like, mm. no, we're just saying the same thing. Like, So that guy over there has a bad ankle. That guy over there um, you know, is not very strong. And that guy mm. over there, like, it really helped if he asked a lot of questions and took mm. really good notes. Mm. And the guy with the bad ankle wears an ankle brace. The guy that's not that very strong goes in the weight room, and the guy that has to ask a lot of questions asks a lot of questions. Mm, good answer. Good answer. So, you know, so not. Mm, yeah. So just bringing it back to the AIQ and what you were asking about from a parent standpoint is, mm. when you have good information, 
then you can make well-informed decisions that can optimize the individual's performance. If I know that my son or daughter is left-handed, I might want them to play first base more than third base in baseball because left-handed people are, are closer to the rest of the action. Stuff like that. Mm. Good and good answer. Like I said, you know, so it's not it's not a one size fits all, and it's not necessarily a dead end, in the sense that okay, look, this is what you look out for. You don't find this, you know, chapter closed. Move on to something else, you know, that you can do. I, I absolutely love that answer. So let's come back to the AIQ. What are the things that comprise of the AIQ, and what are these things that the athletes need to start looking out for? So the athlete is ma- the the AIQ is comprised of um, ten narrow abilities and four cognitive uh, broad abilities. So things like visual spatial processing, how you go about seeing the court or the field, things like reaction time, things like uh, decision making and processing speed. So like how quickly can you identify important pieces of information so you can make quick and accurate decisions. So it's really about kind of solving the puzzle, again, as I mentioned before. So going back to football, you're now a central midfielder. You receive an outlet pass from the defender. You have to rotate 180 degrees to initiate the attack. And as a central defender, you got to quickly highlight and identify where are your strikers, where are your wingers, where are the defenders, are they playing a flat back four, all of these kinds of details that would warrant you to make a whole bunch of quick and accurate decisions and know where you are in relation to space from when you receive the ball. Uh. So there's a lot of these like mental tasks. It's funny because people have historically talked about athletes in a very stereotypical way where they go, oh, they're so dumb, you know, dumb jock (laughs) kind of stuff. But the reality is what they're capable of doing, Uh. like would be hard for some physics professors to describe because what they're figuring out, like think about like, again, using football, the winger is full on sprinting and that center midfielder receives the pass, rotates 180 degrees and then has to chip a ball over the defense in a spot that hits the winger right on stride. That's a pretty complicated task. If someone were to ask about the physics of that and how fast the ball should go and what the angle of the trajectory of the chip and everything else, mm-hmm. like, like I'm, that's beyond me. Like, I, I'm going to need a protractor, an abacus, and, and a couple of other, and, and, and at least two teachers to help, you know? And yet, mm-hmm. midfielders do that stuff all the time. And some I'm, of them I'm, figure I'm that stuff out. Yeah, it's totally amazing. And some of them figure it out faster than others. They go, oh, hey, if I chip it like this, or if I put a backspin on it, or you know, I can kind of bend it. Like, it's just one of those things where athletes aren't uniform. They're not robots. If it was, the sport would be over. It would be boring. Everybody would go, oh, just that yeah. team's always going to beat that team. But no, like the reality of it is, is it's like, man, that guy's really fast. Hey, that guy's really smart. Like he's always in the right place at the right time. And oh, that guy's really good at, at he's strong. Like it's hard to knock him off the ball. All three of those are assets. You find somebody's got all of them in the same person, they tend to be that's the real goat right there. Someone who's mm-hmm. exceptional across every domain. 
of those of those aspects before before i ask you of examples of athletes who fit all four of those domains you've mentioned spatial awareness you've mentioned processing speed you've mentioned learning efficiency you've mentioned reaction time is there any sport that any of this doesn't fit into i'm ju- I'm, ju- I'm just thinking does not fit yes um there are some sports that teams have asked to use or players or people have asked to use like golf mm. but i'm like mm, okay. you know i'm not so sure we meant it to be used for that but then i start talking with them and they start to tell me about how their sport does require certain elements of our cognitive abilities so then i was like okay well, what about swimmers like i don't know swimmers you're just staring at a you know you're staring at the bottom of the pool going back and forth and then they started telling me about all these strategies like negative split and cat and mouse. And I went, well, I guess you would kind of need to know certain things and certain cognitive abilities that could help you sort of figure that stuff. So I think that there are definitely some sports that are better fit for what we capture with the AIQ right. than others. But I haven't found too many sports where I'm like, nah, I wouldn't use it for that. I've actually tried. I've said to certain people, I'm like, I don't know if it was meant for that. And they're like, watch. You'll see. And then we did it. <laughs> and we got the report. And then, like, um, we uh, we were working, I won't say which place, which which, which Olympic Federation, but we were working with um, bobsledders and, and luge and skeleton. So all of the sledders, right? <laughs> Excuse me. And I'm going, I, I don't know. I mean, they're, like, this is how stupid I am. I'm like... How hard is it? They just jump into a, a sled. Like, I've been sledding since I was a kid. Like, every time it snowed, I'd grab a sled and go yeah. down a hill. Like, all I did was sat on this thing and, and held on for dear life. Isn't that what they're doing? And then they explain, like, oh, no, no, no. Like, there's a reaction time element to getting a good start. There's the visualization element to knowing where in your mind's eye are the turns in the course so that you can lean and mm-hmm. steer. And so, sure enough, they did it. And then they started to find profiles. Like the drivers started to really um, do better at certain cognitive abilities than some of the runners. And so I was like, holy cow, like, that's really neat. So our goal was to really create a high fidelity, a great capture of what we were measuring, which was sports-specific intelligence. And we've let other people find its utility in whatever sport they wanted to use it in. And so far, every everybody that's asked, I've always done it like this, where I go, I don't think it's going to work. And they go, well, let's try it. And then sure enough, they discover something. I'm like, oh, that's awesome. Mm. Of course, that, that, that shows is universal applicability in terms of, you know, getting those results. But back to the beginning where I was talking about the young athlete, right? The inexperienced athlete that athlete trying to go from good to great should they be focusing on some of these things you have mentioned in the aiq that's one if they should be how easily can you explain what each of those things mean yeah so that my answer to the first thing is if you're trying to go from good to great i think you should be doing really good inventory what are your strengths what are your weaknesses across all domains if I'm short, I better come up with some strategies to make myself not be um, at a disadvantage for my height. If I'm weak, 
I better come up with some strategies to take disadvantages of my lack of strength. Same thing with intelligence. So I think measuring what you do becomes really important. And that's where the AIQ can kick in and really be helpful for the good to great. Because it's providing information so people can make a well-informed decision. Like, for example, you know, we are talking about that spatial awareness rotating 180 degrees. If you're not good at that, you might not want to play center midfield. You might want to be like a back. You might want to be an out, you know, a, a, like a left winger or a right winger. Like you might want to play somewhere where you don't have to have a 360 degree responsibility. Mm. Now, as far as going bit by bit, piece by piece through mm. each one, simple explanation. Uh, <laughs> I think if I were to go through all of that, one, it would take us some time, and two, I think it would be boring. But the basic gist of it is this. Visual spatial awareness is like field awareness. It's just mm. knowing where you are in relation to others, in relation to space. Reaction time is kind of like a starter pistol goes off, you're off and running. <laughs> Excuse me. Decision making is really about the ability to like look for minute details so you can make good decisions and mm. identify what's important, what's not important. And then learning efficiency is the ability to download and recall information later. Hmm. Yes, very, very, very simple and straight to the point. And of course, it answers the, the, the questions that I've asked. You know, you've worked with a lot of teams, you know, so like you mentioned, five major leagues, you know, and these are really high level sports with high level athletes. Which of these things have been the most difficult that you've seen for the athletes to improve in? I, I don't think there's a trend like that. I think what we're starting to see is like it, there is there are some trends like for example a goalkeeper might possess these cognitive abilities versus a central midfielder might be better suited to possess these other qualities like we're starting to see those kinds of profiles the thing is I'd want to be cautious to steer away from that kind of thinking because I think it would be a horrible decision to eliminate someone from an opportunity based off of one data point. Uh. So I, I think what's worth noting is, again, sport is very complicated. And that's the reason why so many people can gamble on it. You just don't know uh. what it's going to be like. You don't know who's going to win the game tonight. And because you uh. don't know, you know, that's why I think we watch. Because it's unscripted. Because it's unwritten. And I think... Even the best talent evaluators, the best coaches, they are trying to constantly solve the puzzle of sport. And as soon as they do, it gets mutated in a way. Like the second they create the offside trap, there's a way to beat that. The second they create a flat back four, there's a way to beat that. Oh, that's a, that, that, that's a good one. You know, and I assume that with all these things you have said and broken down, you know, and of course we're going to wrap up shortly. You know, but I, I like that we've gone from the, the school aspect because I feel like, you know, what we've discussed so far is something that people write thesis on. And of course, like you said, you have two PhDs. Come on. So it, it, it like brings us right back to that. What role does pressure play in all of this? You know, because you see the athletes, right, who their special awareness when they're playing, when, when there's no pressure, there's no expectation, they're playing amongst friends or maybe less quality opponents, it appears to be fantastic, right? You see the average person watch them play and they're like, oh, he's amazing. 
they don't want to hear about the quality of the opponents and all that you talk about reaction time it's not the olympic final you know so i'm doing what i'm doing you know maybe my backyard at a school game or, or whatever it is how does pressure affect this how can athletes better start dealing with pressure yeah so to bring it to the aiq specifically there is a bilateral relationship because i think the higher your intelligence the more solutions you can come up with and the more solutions you can come up with could yield a greater level of confidence to get it done similarly the higher intelligence can also be the more threats or dangers you might start to identify and anticipate, which of course would then increase anxiety. So there's that element to it. There's also the element of like, you know, when people talk about optimal performance, when people talk about like being in the zone or being in the flow state, which I'm not like a huge fan of that oversimplified terminology, but Mm. what I do resonate with is you have to have the talent meet the challenge. If the talent is higher than the challenge, people tend to get kind of like disinterested. This is easy. Like me running against a bunch of eight-year-olds. I'm going to win that race yeah. every time. Yeah. On the flip side of that is when the challenge exceeds the task. Like me running against Olympic medal winners. Yeah. Again, no chance. But it's when I'm competing against other people of similar caliber to myself where I have the skill set to meet the challenge is where a flow state can occur or where people can get into the zone. So going back to it with performance anxiety, I think a lot of times what's happening is it's the talent meeting the challenge is is out of sync. Mm that's causing that kind of perceived threat or danger. So the other thing that I would point out there is you can have anxiety cause a delay in performance. And that in performance can be in how your muscles fire. It can also be in how you digest the information on the field. So the more confident you are in what you can execute, the less likely you're going to perceive the situation as threatening, less likely you are to experience the anxiety. Hmm. I, I love your answer because it's taking me, it, it wasn't an angle I would have gone to, but it, it's, it's perfect and right on point with what you mentioned. You know, so I, I don't know how much of um, Asafa Powell, so the, the Jamaican 100-meter runner, you know, that, that maybe you really followed him and things like that because he was actually the guy before Usain Bolt, right, broke the world record a couple of times and all of that. Whenever he was racing, in uh, so I think there was a time before the either the 2007 or 2005 World Championships, where he he went for a particular race. He almost broke the world record. He was a favorite going into the 100 meters. Gets to the final. I think he finished fourth or fifth or something outside the medals, right. Three weeks after the World Championships, it breaks the world record. And everybody's like, why didn't you do it three weeks ago when it really mattered so that you could win the gold medal? What would you say to decisions where 
at least they either train exceptionally well or in lesser tournaments because i don't want to believe and of course you you can correct me with this that somebody like asafa powell didn't have the talent to meet the challenge at the world championships but he could break the world record in three weeks how do athletes handle this in terms of you train well or you play well in smaller tournaments when it matters you're found wanting well that's a really good question and i think i think if if we could master that then people would mm. just perform at their best at the biggest moments mm. so i think that there's a couple of things to factor here and this goes back to something that i am concerned about which is sometimes people can over default to this being a psychological issue it might be mm. that they didn't taper correctly it might be that their hamstrings were a little bit tight that day there are all these other things that could have hampered so to me optimal performance isn't running your fastest time it's running the fastest time you possibly could in that given moment and circumstance mm. and i think what's really challenging is how to identify what is the fastest you can run in that specific moment and circumstance given the complexities of all the variables that we've discussed i find what becomes an oversimplified default answer is to say oh he psyched himself out and i'm like mm. i don't know if that's the case now i do believe being psychologically ready is as important as having those hamstrings be loose but only there's only one person that truly knows from head to toe what they were capable of nobody else and sometimes even that one person themselves the athlete themselves they might not possess a whole lot of self-awareness or insight to be able to actually measure it. So I go back to the idea of the complexity. I think what happens in the world of sports is we love the poetic narrative of it being more of a mental thing because it gives us all this idea of hope yeah. and belief. Like, oh, I could be, I could, I could be a world champion if I had the right kind of mindset. Mm. And that's where, like, I like to pull the quote from Ratatouille. You know, the movie Ratatouille, where he mm. says, like, look, not everyone can cook, but a cook can come from ev anywhere. Mm. So I don't, I, like, I do think everybody has gifts. I do think everybody can find their special, but it's not necessarily always in what they might want it to be. Mm. And so I go back to, again, highlighting what people are good at, taking good inventory, matching it with some kind of passion and purposefulness so that they stay on task to perform at a high level. They get their 10,000 hours in uh, is uh, the combination of what creates an excellent output. Wow, nice. And I'm going to put you on the spot here because I like how you've broken it down, you know, and not being not wanting to be boxed into a corner, you know, and like you said, you're right. Everybody always says, oh, it's mental, it's mental. And, and all of that hypothetically right you're working with a suffer power there's nothing wrong with his hamstrings he's in the best physical shape that he could be in gets to the world championships gets to the final doesn't win a medal at all so not even silver or bronze right 
three weeks later it breaks the world record what kind of conversations are you having uh where i like to start so we've eliminated all other possible explanations where i like to start is i like to ask the athlete what do you think happened Mm. and i i like to go where they go i don't think there's a universal answer there i think that it's like some people they maybe their heart wasn't in it they were like i've had some interesting conversations where um athletes were driven by their parents so they never really loved the sport but they were invested in making mom and dad happy and in that shining moment where it was supposed to be the the great moment for their mom and dad they sabotaged the moment so i think what's really interesting is um people can play with history and people can play with the future you know what what are the things that got me here what's going to happen when this thing is over that can sometimes mess with what's going on with what's what's happening right now so uh i i i worked with an olympic athlete who won world championships but never won gold medals and it was interesting to talk about the difference of the events and one of the things that contributed to some of this athlete's um, psychological hiccup was the first Olympics the athlete was going to, the athlete attended, the outcome wasn't as planned. There was an expectation by by the athlete and everyone around the athlete, he was going to win the gold medal. And when it didn't happen it set the table for the next Olympics to have this sort of almost like um, scarred tissue, if you will. Yeah. Oh, God, what if it happens again? Here we go again. So I find asking the athlete what's going on is the place to start. Mm. And then I try to pull. Mm. Sorry. And then I try to pull from my clinical psychology, my school psychology, my performance psychology, my military psychology, my industrial organization psychology. I try to pull from all these different places of training where I go, okay, what empirically validated treatment would best fit this individual? See, again, going back to the whole field of sports psychology, yeah. I find one of the things that happens is if you are a, um, if you're a screwdriver, you make everything a screw. Yeah. So yeah. what happens is they'll take the question you just asked and they'll go, oh, I believe in mindfulness. So I would have the athlete be more mindful and focus on the present. And some of that might be really applicable, but it might not be a universal treatment. True. So I, I, I wish I was smart enough to know this athlete that you're talking about and say, here's what we would do. But mm. honestly, my concern is if I gave you a path or a proposed solution, mm-hmm. some of your audience might go, oh, I'm going to use that. <laughs> That's right. And then they go, how come that didn't work for me? And it's sort of like, well, like, you know, some people fit better in Nikes. Others fit better mm-hmm. in Adidas. Some need Brooks, like Under Armour. Like, there's a lot of different shoes. Oh, yeah. So I try not to give away the simple for the fear that yeah. it might trick those into thinking it's a universal solution. 
True, true. And I completely agree, you know, so and, I th- and I know, I believe, you know, that they are smart enough to know that it's not a one-size-fits-all. So the fact that Usain Bolt is doing this, it doesn't mean that you go and trade by yourself and you're like, I'm going to become an Olympic champion. You know, but the reason your answers are so good is that, you know, they're just, it's like, it's like an onion. So, you know, they keep revealing things in themselves. In asking the athlete that question, right, and starting off of that and going from there, how do you tell if the athlete is just making excuses? So, I mean, you see athletes who, let's be honest, it's everybody's problem but theirs, right? Um, it's because the race started five minutes late or because this particular thing happened. How do you decipher when, oh, that's an excuse, oh, this is something that we can work with? So remember what we started with, which is their best performance in that specific given situation. Mm. So I've worked with Olympic athletes One that won a gold medal when the bus broke down and she had to run to the arena the last Mm. mile. Wow. So there was an athlete I worked with, and she told me this story. I remember it so vividly. She got into a very rigid routine. She had to eat a bagel before a competition. She had to get to to the arena at a certain time, all of this stuff. So she goes to the training table. They're out of bagels. She's freaking out. She gets on the bus. The AC was broken. It was super hot. Then the bus breaks down. I think it was like not the last mile, but it was like the last, I want to say, couple hundred meters. It was something she had to still run to get to. So here she was, completely out of whack. Out of sync. And here's what's amazing about her and her psyche, because I asked her about this stuff, because we did a lot of work prior to this event about getting ready. And so I said, what happened? She goes, you know what? Something that she nor I talked about prior to this is she said, I had so many excuses in place that I felt liberated to go swim because if someone asked me why it didn't work out, I could have told them for X, Y, and Z things. Yeah. So going back to your question of like, how do you identify what's an excuse versus like, none of it's, it's, it's it can all be factual. Like these things are all relevant. Like, hey, the race, you know, there was a rain delay or anything like all of those things are the athlete's perspective, and I would go put it back on the athlete and say, okay, all those things you just talked about as being obstacles are true. They were also true for your opponents too, weren't they? Mm. And they're like, yeah. And I go, okay, so how come this other person navigated it better than you did? Mm. Let's figure that out. So that yeah. way, if it rains again, or if the bus breaks down or the bagel's not there... You're ready for anything. Mm, mm, mm. Makes makes a lot of sense. And I think I'm going to wrap this all up in a very nice bow, which brings me to confidence, right? Because all these things you're saying, whether we like it or not, they have their place a little bit rooted in confidence, right? So my, my, my day goes out of sync. My routine goes out of sync. I'm still confident in my abilities. Okay, yes, my hamstring is tight for this particular race. Previous races, it's been amazing. It's been good. It's been excellent. Okay, but I'm feeling it. But I'm still confident I can do the job. You know, so even if my opponent is the one in form, I'm still confident that I've worked hard enough to get to this point. And luckily, we have an expert in confidence on the show, 
right here, right in front of me. How do athletes develop these kinds of confidence when they're performing? So my, my dissertation was on confidence and confidence Fantastic. induction. What I discovered was they had performed some research. I think it was the 92 right. Olympics. I can't remember, but there was an Olympic back in the 90s where they interviewed us, 96, 92, one of those, where they asked the medal winners, what do you wish you had more of? And the number one answer mm -hmm. was confidence. And these are Olympic wow. medal winners. So I said, God, I think there's something here. Like, there's something really neat here. Let's explore this. First thing, I couldn't find a universal definition of confidence. Everybody talks about confidence. Oh, we got to be more confident. Oh, he was confident. She was confident. Everybody talks about it with this sort of shared understanding of what it is, but no one really defined it. So the first part of my dissertation was I had to define it. And what I came up with was a slightly different definition than the way most people use term confidence. I talked about it as not a state of mind, but a state of physiological being. Uh, that confidence is also about like your muscles are ready, your heart is beating. So what's interesting, right, is if someone were to ask you to identify when you feel anxious, uh -huh. they can give you a whole bunch of physical symptoms. My heart's racing, my stomach yep. is upset, my eyes get Sweating. dilated. And you go, okay, well, how did you feel when you were confident? And they go, wait, what are you talking about? <laughs> I wasn't really aware of anything. And you're like, well, so confidence is not the absence of anxiety. I think you can feel confident and still be anxious. I think mm -hmm. confidence is also not just a belief that I can do it. Because the reality is, is I might believe I can fly, but if I jump off my roof tonight, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. Fun. So... I think confidence is really a complicated construct that's based off of sophisticated training for the task. So let's just call that task readiness. Uh. The ability to regulate one's own biophysiological experience and a mental attitude and aptitude that says, okay, we can do this. Uh. So I find a lot of times... Athletes will come into my office and say, I'm not confident. And I go, okay, well, describe to me what you're doing. And more often than not, it's really not even confidence. What we're talking about is something totally different, like anxiety management. And anxiety management and confidence are not the same thing. So there are times where people go, man, I just wish I felt more like I can do the task. Okay, well, what stops you from it? The game's moving too fast. Okay, let's start to come up with ways to slow the game down. So it's really about, to me, that's where these things get complicated is it's not a recipe. It's not a script. We're not like making the best batch of cookies. It's about understanding. So I try to listen to the athlete and I try to listen deeply. Then I try to go, oh, I think there's something here that if we just tweak it, the system explodes. And so that's what I try to do. I don't think it's wow. formulaic, like, oh, just focus on your breathing. Oh, yeah. just do imagery or visualization. And those things are good. Yeah. I just think it's about a more complicated process than that. Mm. Wow, wow. 
I, I wish I could keep you for, for, for the next three hours, right? Because, you know, if you have two dissertations, then it means that you, you, you literally have more that we could go into this. But I have to let you go. And we started from what? Performance psychology. Uh, we talked about the AIQ. We talked about traditional sports IQ. We've talked about so many things. You know, we've gone through all of these things. And, of course, we wrapped up with pressure, confidence, um, excuses. If there was an athlete that's listening to us right now, and the athlete said, Dr. Scott, I've heard all the things that you and Tola have talked about, right? For the last one hour and, what, 10, 12 minutes there about. You know, I- I'm going to start working on all these things. I'm going to start studying. I'm going to start asking questions. I'm going to start doing all these things. But I need you to give me one thing that I can start with that gets me going. So it doesn't have to get me to the goal. It doesn't have to help me accomplish all of my sports goals no but just something that gets me started what would you say that one thing is dr scott i would start by taking a really good inventory what are my strengths what are my weaknesses what do i do well what do i struggle why that's where i would start i would start to problem solve and just keep kind of problem solving that's first The second place to go is, why am I doing this? What's my purpose? What's my passion? And Because again, most athletes that I know, they don't like working out. They like winning the game, so they're willing to work out in order to win the game. So going back to swimming, for example, let's say it's a three-minute race. How many hours are you in the pool for a three-minute race? Hundreds of thousands at the Olympic level. Tell me anywhere on this planet where spending 100,000 hours in exchange for three minutes is worth it. Something, yeah. (laughs) So the best athlete, the best swimmer I've ever been around, they go, 100,000 hours of training? No, like that was the good stuff. I actually enjoyed that. Because that's rare... The second place that I like to go is go, okay, why are you in the pool? And hold on to that. If the idea of getting to a place of mastery requires time and attention, then what are you engaged to? What do you truly love? What are you really passionate about? Why are you doing what you're doing? And hold on to that so that way it gets you to those 100,000 hours in the pool. Mm, Excellent answer. Excellent answer. And, of course, final question the reason I named the podcast Athlete Maestro, you know, just like I said in my emails, was I wanted to help athletes master their craft, especially on this side of the pond, where uh, a lack of information, lack of education is actually very prevalent. You know, you find these athletes who ordinarily would have been so good if only they were exposed to better information and things like that. That's why I named the podcast Athlete Maestro. What in your estimation... Does it mean to be a master of your craft? Um, and we're talking about sports. Um, I don't think dogs chase parked cars. I think when uh. a dog catches a car, they won't know what to do with it. I think mastery is a term that people use... But I think it really should be seen more as a process than it is a finish line. Mm-hmm. Mm. So I don't 
think someone becomes a master. I think some people become better at their craft, but again, some of the best athletes, some of the best artists, some of the best musicians, some of the people that I've really been gifted to work with, you ask them like, "Wow, you're so good!" Like, how, wait, how many Super Bowls have you won? And and they do not tell you they're masters. They still are learning. They're looking for competitive advantages wherever they can. So, I think part of the like. In life, some of the sweetest truths are in the paradox, which is the second you think you've got something mastered is the second you realize how much more you have to learn. So I'm not so sure there is a finish line to this quest. So the only thing I would kind of highlight or asterisk is like, don't make yourself crazy on this quest to mastery try as best you can to enjoy the journey wherever far or however far you get. Hmm. Oh, fantastic. Like you've, I, I thought I was one that wrapped it up in a bow with, with, with the confidence aspect, but, but you, you, I mean, you literally just knocked it out of the park. Thank you so much for coming on Dr. Scott. Um, it's been an amazing conversation and I feel like I've been taken to school. So if I've been taken to school, I can just imagine what, what the listeners are you know so it's like well they're going on a five-year degree or, or, or something like that it's been a pleasure having you on thank you so much for for gracing us with your presence and of course sharing your knowledge and talking about everything that you have it's been my pleasure i think whatever good came out of this conversation was stimulated by the questions that you asked and the environment you created so i thank you for the time and the attention and and the contribution now, uh, please tell us how we can follow you, how we can uh, find you, what, social media, emails, websites, how we can connect with you. You know, people have questions, how they can reach out. Yeah, uh, if I was a smarter businessman, I'd probably have more of those kinds of things. I don't really have many of those. Um, if you want to learn more about the AIQ, uh, you can go to athleticintel.com. Um, mm. If there's a social media. I don't really follow it that closely, but I do have a Twitter account, which I think it's, I think it's at Scott Goldman PhD, but I'm not even positive. I'll, I'll find it. <laughs> I don't know. However so you found me, whatever, however you found me is how someone else can find me. I'm pretty accessible. Fantastic. <laughs> I'll put all of that. I'll put all of that in the show notes, definitely. And of course, um, if you have any questions, uh, we can follow up and ask you. Thank you so much for coming on, Dr. Scott. Hey, this was a treat. Thank you. Take care. So if after listening to that, you're not scratching your head a little bit, right? Then it means that you did not pay attention to all the things that Dr. Scott was talking about. Like, that's literally what it means. It means you didn't pay attention because even for me, like I was scratching my head with a lot of stuff about how they just made sense, like how in-depth it was that we went into those things. And of course, Dr. Scott was gracious, you know, to, to, to break things down and to go into detail and to answer the questions just as it came to him, even though I put him on the spot in, in a lot of situations. It was such a fantastic episode and I'm sure you guys enjoyed it. If you did, then of course, I want you to share your feedback with me. Send me an email at athletemaestro.com and of course i will be sure to share your feedback with dr scott send me an email so just say interview with dr scott tell me how it was tell me what you learned trust me i'm going to be taking notes 
of those who are sending me this feedback right and of course i'm going to forward your message to dr scott so that you know he's he gets the feedback from you guys directly in terms of everything that you're looking for so uh, check dr scott out you know as he mentioned at their website athleticintel.com athleticintel.com that's of course where you get all the details that you need to ensure that you get to the promised land and of course like i said if you enjoy this episode send me an email tola at athletemaestro.com and i'll be sure to forward your message to dr scott if you haven't subscribed to the podcast so that you don't miss great episodes like this with really knowledgeable people like dr scott has two phds like imagine getting him on a podcast you know and listening to him in detail that you need to subscribe to the podcast and also leave us a rating and review the goal is to help athletes achieve their goals especially on this side of the pond of course we do that with great guests like dr scott and of course your rating and review which tells other athletes that this is a worthwhile podcast they can use to achieve their goals in sports athletemaestro.com forward slash subscribe athletemaestro.com forward slash subscribe you learn how to subscribe you also learn how to leave that rating and review if you have any questions whatsoever for me or dr scott send me a mail tola at athletemaestro.com and of course i'll be sure to forward your email to dr scott tola at athletemaestro.com i'll catch you guys on the next episode of the show remember knowing is not enough you must apply willing is not enough you must do and just go out there i want you to begin to apply everything you've learned from dr scott goldman i want you to go out there and i want you to be a maestro today and every single day